think it was Jacques Cousteau who said, if I, if I knew what I was going to find, I wouldn't go there. And it's partly because the good stuff you find once you start that mission, you have a, you know, a working treatment, an idea. But the, the gold is always found in the field, the, the great story that you never, you couldn't find until you got out there. And there's no shortage of great stories. So the problem I have is time. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable, and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists, and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. Purpose meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, the earth, how they cultivate the community with others, and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment in themselves. This is season two of the Rome from Home podcast, and we have some really exciting news. Adventure Activist has come on for this season to support us for the next 12 episodes with a very clear vision and a lineup that will be designed to promote action and ignite change for the better. And in particular, this season, we are with the founder of Adventure Activist, our co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And with his help, we're going to be looking carefully at this concept of effective altruism and who is really doing the work that is leading to better outcomes in some of these causes. So we really want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, get up off the couch, stand up and take a stance on social and environmental issues that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Terry, He's a medical doctor and an ER doc. Terry was a climber and an adventurer, and that inspired him to get into medicine. And his work as an ER doc has inspired his work to be and to become the founder of Venture Activist, which is focused on the SDD goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so with that, what's up, Terry? Hey, everybody. Terry here. Yeah, CJ. Uh, you know, I think we've joined forces here because we believe that those who are privileged to expand their horizons as travelers and explorers really do bear intimate witness to the threats to our world and are really uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. So we really want this season to be an educational space uh, for our listeners, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change. And we want to share our network of subject matter experts in really diverse areas of expertise, including health, education, philanthropy, peace, justice, conservation, climate, and more. You and I are learning about this as we go. You're teaching me. Some of our guests are teaching us collectively. Uh, and in speaking of our other co-host, Corey Richards, who was my co-host throughout the entire first season, the first 24 episodes, he will also be joining us for a lot of these episodes. He's sort of in and out, depending on if he's in the Himalaya, if he's training, he has a busy life as a photographer, working photographer and athlete. And he brings an awesome perspective as someone who's also trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, you feel that in some of the episodes, Terry, you've noted that Corey's curiosity on this, I think is going to be really helpful for the audience. Oh, absolutely. He's had some great reflections uh, so far, but I really do enjoy learning from our guests and their process and figuring out how they want to best serve and give back uh, to the world. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious uh, who we got up next. So today we're speaking with uh, iconic photographer, Oscar-winning filmmaker, and oceanic conservationist, Luisa Hoyas. If you don't know him, he's been described as one of the top 10 photographers in the world. 
And his first documentary, The Cove, won an Oscar in 2009, in addition to many other accolades. And he's the co-founder and executive director of the Oceanic Preservation Society. His mission, along with them, is to shed a light on the decline of the oceans, our world's most crucial resource, and bring awareness to the importance of all underwater life. But as you'll see in the conversation, it's so, so much more than that. Cool. When I started taking pictures back in the 70s, my inspirations were in my musical heroes, you know, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie. And I would go to these concerts where you'd have like Arlo Guthrie playing with Pete Seeger. And I saw that music moved people to action. This is when they were protesting nuclear power plants. And I, I got really inspired by that whole genre of like using, using art to, to change the world. When I started at National Geographic, the first story I did for them was on the energy crisis of 1979, Because we were at that time, we were taking, you know, the single use stuff like aluminum cans and throwing it into the garbage and it wasn't being recycled. And I thought, well, let's change the even the, the framing of the, the title, the working title, Urban Ore. You know, it, it, it felt like, OK, here's we can mine the stuff that we're throwing away, you know, garbage. <laughs> and that uh, there was a cover story. And I can't remember 35 inside pages, maybe something like that. Or maybe it's just 35 pictures. But. You know, back then, Geographic had about 11 million subscribers in the U.S., and I think it's probably about still the same, about four people see each issue. Mm -hmm. So about 44 million people saw that issue, and it started this water cooler conversation. You know, the conversation was already going. People could, mm -hmm. you know, see that it was headed that way, but... I could see that the media, like a, a really powerful magazine like Geographic could put jumper cables on the issue, like yeah. no other magazine could, because it was, you know probably still is one of the most respected but not the most respected photographic magazine in the world we didn't have the data that we do like now with the internet but you could just see that it, the the equivalent of the media sphere was was blowing up on the issue and i, mm -hmm. I felt like uh, they had a lot of letters to the editor it was the most popular story of the of the year and that issue and i was just an intern when i started mm -hmm. that story and then uh, based on that story they hired me as a as a contract photographer but i really what happened was they you know they said oh the, the kid can make garbage look good let's have him do, do this other stuff you know and that was just i mean it'd be quite you know i was in, in the, this here's this is, this is the conflict is like okay i was the first photographer they hired in over a decade 11 mm -hmm. years and I, i felt so privileged to be there And then when they say, we want you to do a story on this, I was like, oh my God, that's not my mission, but God, I want to live. I want to really work for these people. And I was good at doing that. But at the end of that, you know, during that experience, it wasn't fulfilled. There was a missing ingredient. And that's was like, I, I was taking these pictures that were, you know, maybe winning awards and just putting, you know, money on the plate and give me a, like a reputation, but it wasn't, they weren't the kind of stories I wanted to do. And yeah. I, 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 I got off the rails. Like I thought like, and you're told, okay, well, you, you just need the mortgage. You now you have kids. Now you have all these, these modern adult concerns, mm -hmm. you know, that Pollyanna idea, you can change the world. I put that kind of on the back burner, but I, I, I could tell myself enough stories that I was doing good work. I was giving uh, the public's impression of what success is, but what I was missing is 
the real joy that you get when you're doing something that intrinsically is changing the world when you're helping people. And I, I learned that pretty late, you know, like mid-career when I started uh, the Oceanic Preservation Society with my friend Jim Clark. You know, I, I worked for Geographic for 20 years. I quit four times. They kept on, you know, <laughs> increasing my salary. And so, and, and so I was making, you know, a good good amount of money, but it wasn't like doing the stuff that I felt really good about. It wasn't ticking that big box about, you know, mission critical. It was like helping other people. Then when I was, um, I started working for Fortune magazine, um, and one of the people I met was Jim Clark, the guy that you know he's, he started three companies, three industries from scratch, and made them all worth over a billion dollars. He started the first commercial internet browser. He he, he put man on the moon. He went, when John F. Kennedy put to, uh, called for to put an American on the moon, Jim was working the computer systems over at Boeing and said it's never going to happen. He went to his boss, sped up the com- computers twentyfold. He did that while he was in college. So it seems like a guy who could get something done. <laughs> yes, I mean. <laughs> the, the, the guy, the guys hit it out of the park. He started, the, you know, like the, the, the he built the first 3D graphics engine, which is a way that games can uh, can work in real time. Then he started Netscape, first commercial internet browser. When I met him, he was starting WebMD, which was you know the the health pl- uh, platform. And he was also starting another company called Shutterfly. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, "Louis, would you teach me how to be a good photographer?" I said, "Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great photographer. You teach me how to be a billionaire." Right. <laughs> And we, so we started this, this thing where we both like, we, we found out the day one that we love to dive. And so he would pick me up on his plane and we go diving all over the world and shooting underwater pictures. And he said, Louie, I want to take you to the best place I've ever seen in my life. And it took a long time to get there, even, you know, flying like we were, you know, on his private plane, it still took like a day and a half to get to some remote area of Papua New Guinea, you know, his boats waiting for us over there. We sail over there. He, he dove on the coordinates and he came up and it was like, he was, he was wet, but you could see, it was like almost crying. So what's wrong? He says, the reef is gone. The best reef he'd ever seen in his life was gone. It was, you know, we don't know if it was dynamite fishing or whatever, but every time that we would go to a new reef that we'd been to before, we'd see this degradation going on. And, you know, Jim was like one of these people, like, he's like, these cameras are crap. The, the digital cameras of the time, or the, the optics are horrible. What's wrong with them? And I said, well, Jim, that's, you got the best thing that money can buy, you know, off the shelf. And he says, well, why don't they have like a, a, a medium format digital camera? I said, well, it's too expensive. He built two of them for us. You know, right. he had like his R&D team in and he built this, the best, still the best camera ever made, you know, from yeah. underwater. And this is the way he's thinking. So now, so you keep in my mind, my, my best friend is changing the world literally, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so, and I'm just helping him take pictures, right? I'm having a good time. But, but I think the third time we were in the Galapagos, we came up from a dive and there was fishermen illegally fishing in a marine sanctuary. And he said, somebody should do something about this. And I said, well, how about you and I? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we'll use your money and my eye and we'll make films. And I had, you know, <laughs> I had never made a film before in my life. I just, I just knew I, the film was powerful and I wanted to go that direction. So he, he really bankrolled OPS, you know, to, to make it happen. And, you know, just taking a leap of faith on somebody that had no experience. And then he built this boat that was like the world's largest private sailboat. It's called Athena. And we're on it on vacation with our families down in the Caribbean. And uh, my son starts playing with uh, on the beach with another kid. It happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. <laughs> Steven had uh, made Jurassic Park the first real computer graphics movie um, at that time that would really look like legitimate real world optics with Jim's computers. So we came over to the boat to meet Jim and you know the, the father of his son's new friend. And I, I remember I had him alone for a couple of minutes and I said, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a first time filmmaker? And he said, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. 
and, and I'm about to start the, the Oceanic Preservation Society, right? You know, and but you know, the but the first film we did was The Cove, and The Cove became, you know, I'm told one of the most winning documentaries in, in history in, in film history. But more importantly, the film created change. I mean, you know, at the time they're killing 23,000 dolphins and porpoises in Japan for human consumption, even though they're toxic. All dolphin meat that's ever been tested has been is toxic, you know, not just a little bit, but like you know, five to 5,000 times more toxic if it was a fish, but of course they're mammals. And they were, at the time they were force feeding it to school children, but the, the film st helped stop that. And, you know, they're, they're now killed um, less than 1600 dolphins. And so the, so dolphin, dolphin hunting is down like way over 90% since the film came out. So I can start to see that the film really is a powerful weapon. You know, I think it's the most powerful weapon we have in the world to create change. And then, you know, based on that, I thought, okay, now I want to attack the film that Jim really set me out to do, which is the second film, Racing Extinction. Racing Extinction is about the Anthropocene, the sixth maxist extinction that, that's on the planet. We've had five major extinctions in the history of the planet. We're going through a sixth one right now. Anthropology is, you know, Anthropocene, it's caused by us. Mm -hmm. And uh, a big story, but there's, um, uh, the, the film is, it's, the, the question we asked ourselves, how can we reach enough people to, to reach that scale that we need to change things? And there's some really good evidence that you need. There's a paper out there called, if you can Google, it's called The Science of Social Change. And I read this and it basically says, the, you know, the high level you know, takeaway is that you need 10% of the population, 100% committed to create that tipping point. That's the tipping point for social change. And they ran the numbers using the suffragette movement, the civil rights movement and Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And then they used these real world uh, world models where they would tell a truth and then they would spread it in the community and see how long it takes based on the people that had the information. And, uh, you know, I remember looking at the paper and I had like three pages of math. <laughs> I, I, call, I called up the, the lead author and I said, listen, I'm not a, you know, a physicist or a, a mathematician. Can you explain it in lay language why that, that model works? You know, what's the, what's the math behind it? And he says, well, he says, it's like if you're trying to create steam you'll never be able to do it unless you get water up to 100 degrees celsius to 212 degrees fahrenheit 10 percent of the population 100 percent committed is how you create steam for social change and so that's the number i kind of use it's like you don't need to convince 51 percent of the population you just need those first early adopters to really have the truth and when you think about it it's probably why the geographic story started to work is because we right. reached 15 percent of the population 44 percent of the population of america of about you know what 300 million at that time so to me it's kind of a numbers game how do you reach that so when we did that film we thought okay the, the film was on discovery uh racing extinction but you know they have the biggest network in the world way bigger than any other it's two and a half they have access to two and a half billion people they released it over they, something unprecedented they put it almost over all their like the science channel the history channel all these different channels that discovery has and i think 36 million people saw it the first day you wow. know so so it was a, it was a good it was a good release but it's not 10 percent. but so right. what we so what we did what we knew that it would be hard to reach that number even on discovery we did these projection events where we projected endangered species onto the empire state building the united nations and and eventually the vatican and i remember when when we finished the, the, the film i think at I can't remember the history of it, but I think it was that Sundance. We only had the United Nations on it. I always wanted to to put the uh, the Empire State Building into it, and because you know it, it's complicated. But the, the the New York police wouldn't let us when we did the UN have a big crowd. The UN is really its own country. It's not even part of America. 
Right. Technically, but the police own the first Avenue. <laughs> and then they said, if we had more than, I think 2000 people, they were going to shut us down and 2000 people in New York doesn't look like a big crowd. So we had to keep the crowd limited. We couldn't advertise it. I thought, man, we could do so much better, but the dream was always to light up the empire state building. Cause you know, there's, that's the one symbol of capitalism and, you know, human achievement. And it's the center of New York, probably more in some ways than the UN is in, in a way. But I remember uh, producers at discovery were like, Oh, you know, on a, the film's good enough on a Saturday night in New York, nobody's going to show up in, in the middle of summer because all the important people over in, over in the Hamptons or over in, in Europe and the press, because it gets uh, dark late at night in the summer, um, you won't be able to get the press there because they can't afford overtime. And I thought, eh, I'm not so sure about that. But so we did it anyway. I raised the money for it, mortgaged my house. And we had, I think, 939 million media views by Thursday. So from Saturday, so in five days, top trending story on Facebook and Twitter for four days worldwide. And, you know, we had, and my, my son came, to, my son, Sam came to the event. And when he, he got up to this, we rented this bar overlooking the Empire State Building, you know, to get, you know, our supporters and people there. And we had some music going and he said, dad, there's a, there's people on the street. And I thought he that meant people on the street trying to get to the bar because the bar was full. He said, no, down, down, look down on the street. Cause I was on this rooftop. I never looked over and the street was like, it looked like the New York Easter parade. It was like, wow. holy shit, just people looking up there. And I thought, man, we, you know, we, we started to get to that 10% number, you know, 939 million media views. And then we thought we couldn't get any more attention than that. And then that's when the Pope called. The Pope had seen what we'd done and he wanted to photo to us to, to put endangered species on the Vatican right during COP21, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, on the, the Paris Agreement. And there we had, I think, 200,000 people watching it live and, you know, in front of the Vatican. And the, when we went to go talk about it uh, to the Pope's team, we had the Pope number two, uh, the, the Pope's number two there. And he goes, um, I'm not so sure if we should do the, it'll happen because of the, you know, the Pope wants it to happen, but the last artist to, to do anything on the, the front, the facade of the, the Vatican was Michelangelo. <laughs> <laughs> you're pretty, so you're, you're keeping pretty good company at that point. Yeah, it's pretty good company. Well, yeah, but, but the, the, the thing is, it wasn't just it, you know, my work. It was really showing the work of all my other yeah. geographic. I was just curating this, this beautiful show of other geographic photographers, you know, these legends in the field. And they all opened up their collection to us. And, and it was like, you know, still... Like when we want to show people what we want to do, like another projection, we just put in this one minute tape of the of the Vatican and people go, oh, I get it. I'll just bring it around real, real quickly to the, what we're doing now is we're doing a, the UN has asked us to do a three day projection event uh, in advance of the next COP uh, mm -hmm. over in Glasgow. So October 22nd to 24th, a three day event. And this time we can use music, we can you know use QR codes to, so we can communicate back to people. We can live stream it through your phone so you can hear, let's say, Jane Goodall speaking 38 stories tall. We can communicate back, you know, which we couldn't do before. Before it was just mainly a visual wow. event. The goal is to reach a billion people so we can create an army to, wow. you know, help solve the climate crisis because we have 10 years left. And, that'd be, you know, it's not like, you know, year 10 where we should start, you know, taking this serious. No, we got to start doing it now. And yeah. Biden and that group, you know, we, we're starting to go on board with the rest of the world to, that, that really gets it now. Do you feel like, and, and so much of what you, I mean, where you started, I mean, you know, I'm really sort of just personally, just as, a, as an anecdote here, I'm, I'm sort of transitioning out of my work with geographic for a number of different reasons, and many of them similar. Um, 
because I feel like I can potentially have more impact uh, in, in a different arena and that specifically being filmmaking. And I'm curious to your thoughts um, because you've really worked in the documentary space. Is this transferable in terms of movement in the narrative space? Because, you know, we see, we see, the films, I always call back to Blood Diamond or Spotlight, where we tell, we condense narrative stories and whether they're based in history or not, we can reach a different audience, but potentially ignite the same level of change by showing something that is quasi-fictional. I mean, have you, have you, are you working in that space at all? How do you, I mean, how do you feel about that crossover? I just had a, a, somebody asked me about that yesterday. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a book publisher, and I was saying that people always ask me. He said, "Like, are you ever going to do a real film?" I, I, I would never. I would never be so. I would never be so bold to say real because I just that's, think they're. I, that's they're the under, yeah. No, 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 not or, at all. They're just that, different, and I'm so curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on the crossover. Well, well, first of all, I've never done that. You know, yeah. I've never never done a, a fiction a, a fictional film. I mean, the numbers show that you know, let, let's say there's there's a film like Dark Water, right, and and um, which is about the you know Dupont poisoning its you know its people and probably the users of Teflon, uh, which was a, a narrative film with was Mark Ruffalo, right? And then there's uh, the Devil We Know, which is a documentary. And I mm -hmm. think you look at me, and there's far more money to be made doing Dark Water as a narrative film than there was a, a documentary. Uh, both of them are great films, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, which one is going to create more change? Probably, probably Dark Water. I've seen them both. I, I like mm -hmm. to see these. I, I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's you know, there's not going to be one documentary that changes the world. I think there's going to be you know, there's a lot of voices, a lot of books, a lot of poetry, a lot of talking, a lot of methodology. And I think we're you know, when I when I was hanging out you know back in the '70s, like with Pete Seeger who's, you know, was partners with Woody Guthrie, Google, if you haven't seen it, he's like, he's, he's the one that sparked the folk music revolution. He told me, he, he said, I remember we were sitting by the, uh, the fireplace at the first annual Croton Point River Revival, probably over 40 years ago now. And he said, it's, he said, Louis, like people are always coming up to me saying, you know, would you help with this concert over here and this and there? And I tell him I'm working on the anti-nuke thing. He says, we're, it's all like, we're, we're trying to push a log up a hill. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's, you know, people that are conscious and trying to do, do the work and people are always saying you should be pushing more over here. You know, this is, we need more help over here. So likewise, I'd say like, we all, this is as long as we're pushing, mm -hmm. we'll get up over the hill. That's what people right. would say. So I would say that, yeah, I mean, it's a, certainly if, if you feel the calling to do that, definitely do that. We, they need, you know, more story, conscious storytellers, you know, you called it the concerned photographer. It's not really my, there's a, a, a series of photojournalistic books I took in college and that, that was their, you know, that was our book. Our, our mm -hmm. textbook was called the concerned photographer point, you know, parts one and two. There's a whole genre of, you know, people going back to, you know, Ansel Adams, Eugene Smith, the people from the works project administration that used photography, their art to inspire change. And I think you need to, you need, a, you know, a lot of different ways to do it, bottom up, top, top down. So we, we work with both. So when we do our impact campaigns now, we're working both at the same time. We start our impact campaigns at the same time we start researching the film. You, you might say like, you know, what's going to inspire change? And it might not be what you think it is. You think, oh, I'll just make a good film. Well, a good film, is, is it entertaining or is it impactful or is it both? You know, because I want to measure the impact of our film is like the ability of the film to change minds and hearts is more important than box office revenue. 
Right. My, my, my fear of getting into the narrative space or advertising or any other money-making venture is that once you start, when, when your North Star becomes box office, mm-hmm. I think it's really hard to keep your ship pointed towards the, the right mm-hmm. goal. And, and that's, I wish I would have told that to my younger self is like, you know, uh, don't be seduced by the, you know, the notoriety or the money and, and align yourself with people that have the same values. Because if you don't, it's really easy to get off that track. Getting uh, in the room with people that understand what you're doing. Because as a filmmaker, it's not about you. You might be leading the group as a director, but you want to be surrounded by the most talented people you have that are driven by the message. Because the message is always our key. And, you know, the, the North Star to the you know most movie producers are, you know, butts and seats. You know, movies just $10 in a box of popcorn. Right. You know, and I think, you know, I look at minds and seats. How do you, how do you change somebody's mind? You look where, where we're at right now. We're, we're causing, we call ourselves uh, homo sapiens, which means the wise ones. And we have this, you know, this arrogant hairless ape that's, you know, fucking up the biosphere, you know, in a way that no other animal has ever done before in history in a very short amount of time, by the way, just a, it's a few decades is happening. You know, the last last two times I went uh, went sailing, I, I I never even got in the water. It was just full of plastic, and it was, I was like, uh, you know, wake up the next morning, think, well, maybe it'll be gone. It was just a river flushing out. And it was like three dimensions of trash off the Amalfi Coast in Italy, one of one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world, and you have one of the most dirty bodies of water right off the the coast there. And I thought we then we sailed up to France, same thing. You know, plastic is now, it's a, it's a huge, huge problem. That's just the plastic I could see. Now there's microplastics, you know, it's in, it's in our water system. It's in, our, it's in fish. It's in our bodies. The average person in America eats about a credit card with the plastic every week. Uh, even a child has, has about 1.6 million micro pieces of microplastics in its body. You know, so it's a, it's a huge problem. And there's a, this is kind of the, the dark water story that we're working on right now. It's like, we used to think that it was like, oh, at least it hasn't, plastic hasn't breached the blood brain barrier, but now they have the tools that they can actually see that it has. And there's like a, this high correlation between Lewy body's disease and, and uh, Alzheimer's, ADHD. A lot, it could be like a lot of these cognitive problems that we have could be caused by plastics. It's certainly a, something called obesogens. When you, you have identically, genetically identical species of mice and you expose one to microplastics and it's foods exposed to the same amount of ex- exercise, the same amount of calories, the foods, every, absolute, every the same. The other one is like 75% fatter than the other one. And it, mm. it, it actually changes the DNA of the, the one exposed to plastic. So it's progeny that's, you know, generations of its mice uh, going out four generations are more obese. <laughs> so yeah. there's, you know, probably a relationship between plastics and a lot of cognitive issues and health issues that we have that, you know, they're just beginning in the last this year to, to understand. I created, it was actually, um, Gosh, Louis, there's so much to dissect here. Right. Already. And I'm sorry if I missed some of it because I think I got plastic. I think I have plastic in my ear. No, I but, think this um, is. I think this is the best. Po- this is the best podcast I've been uh, part of. So yeah, <laughs> just sit and enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, Louis, Corey, and I were having this conversation before you came on about you know, documentary versus narrative in affecting change. And um, I, you had some great points too in, in regards to what the deliverables are and how that can be your guiding star or potentially can pull you off of what your initial, I guess, objective is. But I would, I would think that even utilizing a, a fictional narrative, if you're confident that your deliverables are going to be 
some sort of action in the end. I think it's doable, but it's certainly more fraught with challenges based on the financial incentives that, that Louis talked about here. But like if you if you make a documentary like The Cove and you can say afterwards that you've had an 80% decrease in dolphin harvest as a result of your work, like that is the actionable you've been, that has been your guiding light. And it's love, it's awesome to see that delivered. I think it could potentially be a little bit more tricky unless it's just so, so explicit the very at the very end that like, hey, we're gonna. I've got this character um, or thinking about a movie like Blood Diamond, like, okay, I do want it to create conversation, which you said is, you know, we talked about before, Corey, is, is, there is value in that, but you can never mm -hmm. measure what that right. results in, right? right. You hope, right. and you can, you can just throw some blind faith out there. Like, oh, if everybody talks about the impact of the diamond trade in Africa, it's going to change people's purchasing practices when they go to get that engagement ring. Uh, you would hope, but you're never going to be able to reference any measurable outcome. Yeah. And right. so um, I think Louis' point is, is um, I think it, it merits highlighting because I think there is some kind of comfort to know, hey, what am I doing with this and how am I going to measure it when I'm done? It's a, it's almost a, it's very similar in a kind of scientific analytic mindset that would come from someone from my background. But at the same time, Louis, I'd say that uh, in, in my arena, in healthcare and in public healthcare messaging, and certainly, which has been borne out with the pandemic, is physicians and public health practitioners, we actually really do need to think more about the value of effective storytelling, whether it be in documentary or in a narrative-based set, because that's how people communicate and that's how problems make sense to people. And that's actually how you motivate people to do anything. Because what we've done and what we really are trying to avoid, and what I also think is paralyzing so many well-intentioned people out there, and even in this audience, is just the doom dump of data, right? Mm -hmm. This many people are dying in India today because of COVID. Nobody knows what to do with that. Um, but creating a story with a character uh, that to create an emotion can create that change. Um, and sorry, Corey, I think you, you were probably trying to come in here with something. No, 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 no. I was going to ask Louis, like, how do you how do you avoid the doom dump? I mean, yeah. because realistically, totally. the the films that you've made, um, they're they're hard hitting and they're heavy, and they uh, but they but they do tend to not overburden, but rather ignite. And I'm curious how you, from a narrative structure, I mean, you can get as granular as you want, but I, how do you, how do you walk that line? Because you've done a really good job at it. Well, yeah, first of all, it's, it's not just me, it's, it's the team. You know, I've got a lot of great people that, you know, that I've uh, surrounding myself with over the years, you know, um, older Paul Dupree Pestman, certainly got a producer, Mark Monroe, you know, he's written all the films I've been working on. I love Paula. Ed, ed, She's ed, ed, yeah, he's incredible. The The editors are key. You know, they, they are the unsung heroes of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, just, just keeping everybody on track is really the... the what was the question again? Sorry to well, maybe, this is maybe a way to summarize, like, I guess and with what you've learned, what must you always do in your storytelling? Oh, to, 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 keep, to, to keep on. Yeah, what yeah. Do you learn? yeah. Well, first of all, I think, you know, it used to be when I started out, it's just about awareness. Like, oh, if we, if yeah. we, you know, that was the, if we, if we just make people aware. Well, now people are really aware. They've got, you know, the internet has opened up this whole Pandora's box of world problems. And people are, you know, have compassion fatigue. So you have to be aware of that. Like the way the message has to be delivered is completely different. So, you know, what I did at Geographic, even the, the garbage story was entertaining. I always saw that, like, you know, our, our first role of photography, or I would say, I mean, it's hard to say like doing, you know, when you're doing a picture of war, like make it entertaining, but like, you know, certainly when you're doing a dark subject and you have 90 minutes, you have to be aware that, okay, there's only so much abuse that people can take. You know, they can't mm -hmm. watch an mm -hmm. animal being abused for very long 
and you know we we test our films you know like at least three times hopefully four and you're slowly getting at that formula where you know act one is awareness and then at 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 the end of it you want people to react and so that we construct the films so with with as much data as you can like uh, we did a film called the game changers it's out in netflix it came out i think october like a year and a half ago and uh there was a lot of the, the you know the so-called vegan mafia that had you know they spent hundreds of millions of dollars supporting organizations like PETA and hsus and you know humane society doing doing great work but they're, they're like why can't we get the you know the animal cruelty message out there that animals are suffering because of the way people have this this misconception this misinformation that you have to have animal products to be big strong and have you know endurance and virility right and they spent you know money on a white paper and the white paper said well only about six to seven percent of the population will that message penetrate because they're empaths or they care about animals that they'll enough so they'll listen to it and they won't change but we're stuck because the rest of the the 93% believe that you need to have animal products to be, you know, because it's normal, necessary, and natural. And so until you combated that message, you you, you weren't going to get past that 7%. And so we thought, looked at the research and showed who will they listen to? Well, a guy will listen to other athletes, somebody that they want to look like, that they want to be aspired to, you know? So then we used, uh, you know, James Wilkes, uh, MMA fighter. This is like who everybody, uh, most of the guys I know would aspire to be able to do. Not that, you know, you don't want to go out and, you know, be mean to everybody, but you, you certainly want to be able to defend yourself like James. So we used him as the storyteller, right? Because he, when he got hurt, he found out like he's doing a, like a thousand hours of peer resu- reviewed research to find out what's the best food that you can get to recover from. And in, in the studies, he found out that the, the original MMA fighters, the gladiators were, they had this plant-based gruel that they used to recover from their injuries. And so they were primarily in the, we looked at the scientists, they analyzed the bones and found that they were primarily vegetarians. And this is like mm-hmm. mind blowing stuff. So we came in through his story and then, you know, then we, we, you know, discovered all these other guys that are doing it. These super athletes that are like, you know, a guy that uh, Patrick Baboumian carried more weight than any other human in history, you know, 1,255 pounds, the weight of a horse, 10 meters. It's like, you know, you can't like you and I probably together, we couldn't move this 30 feet, you know, but this guy can just lift it and, you know, run across the road with it. So that, that sort of ticks that box. Well, Patrick Baboumian's a vegan, you know, world's, one of the world's strongest guys, uh, Scott Jurek from Boulder, you know, he's the most accomplished ultra runner in the world, you know, won the seven states or the, the Western states seven times in a row, you know, these are hundred mile races. He's run, I think he has still has the world, the record, the American record for running the most in a day, like 165 miles, 167 miles. And he's, uh, he's a vegan, you know, so this idea that you have to be, you know, to, to be big and strong, you have to eat meat or to have endurance, uh, is just preposterous because people are knocking it out of the park all the time. So, so we used these aspirational athletes. And at the, so at the end of the day, like Netflix won't give us the numbers of like how many people actually saw it. But in the first 30 days, that film, The Game Changers was on Netflix, searches for plant-based diet went up 350% worldwide on Google. So, you know, as a, you know, we certainly got that story going again. And my, my friends that own plant-based businesses said they had to own, you know, they had to put on new factory lines for food products after the, for vegan food, after that film came out. So I know that, you know, anecdotally, the films out there doing the work, I, you know, I was doing a 
is a friend of mine, Kyle Voigt. He started a company called Cruise, uh, the self-driving car company for General Motors. He wanted to be the fastest person in the world to do a, a marathon on each continent. This is back in February of 2020. And so I went with him. He did it in like, like three days, like three and a half days. You know, we went to Antarctica. He ran, ran a marathon then all over the world. I ended up in Australia, which Netflix did tell us that uh, Australia, so for some reason, had the most viewership of any of, of the film, you know, the game changer. So Kyle went on to his vacation, you know, a well-deserved vacation from running a marathon on all seven continents in like four days. And I, I took a rest in Australia and I wanted to, I, I was going to, you know, I didn't tell people who I was, but I, I, I would just, you know, say, Hey, is there a good restaurant around here? And the, like the bellhop would say, yeah, there's a great plant-based restaurant right down the street. So why plant-based? Oh, I saw this film called the game changers. It was like everywhere I went, people were talking about this film. It just, you know, it hit this nerve in, you know, what you would consider a very macho society. Um, so the, the film anecdotally is, is doing its work out there, but listen, the raising of animals is the, the biggest cause of habitat destruction, the biggest cause of species extinction, the biggest cause of freshwater pollution, one of the biggest users of freshwater. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's about 80 to, 80 to 85% of the chronic diseases that we have that probably your parents died of or, or getting taken medication for are reversible just by not doing animal products. Yet, you know, if you want to, if you look at the so-called blue zones, Dan Butner, the yeah, yeah. geographic fellow, he, you know, he popularized the blue zones. Blue zones are where people live the longest without chronic disease, live about 10 to 12 years longer than the rest of us. The only known blue zone, well, the only one in America is in Loma Linda. And I went mm -hmm. down there and it was like, you have Interstate 10 bisecting, you know, the, the Southern part of America. And on the South part of uh, 70 miles outside of LA, you have Loma Linda. Mm -hmm. And about um, almost half the population are vegetarians because mm -hmm. they're, they're Seventh-day Adventists. It's the biggest concentration of Seventh-day Adventists where, you know, God in the Bible was, you know, Genesis says, uh, let the fruit of the tree be thy meat. And they mm -hmm. take that literally. So Loma Linda on the south side of Highway 10, on the north side, you have San Bernardino, one of the unhealthiest populations in the state of California. On the other side, one of the, the, the healthiest populations in the entire world. Mm -hmm. The only difference is like you go to the equivalent of Whole Foods over there and they don't have a meat counter. They don't even sell this. They don't even sell that shit there. Mm, <laughs> that's know, amazing. They, yeah. Well, it's, it's, but they, you know, they've been doing this for 150 years. They've, they, they know just that, that they're healthier. They, they live the lifestyle medicine. They get it. So, I mean, but that, so it's really funny that you bring up Dan. Dan and I did a, a an Instagram live literally three days ago on happiness because he and I worked together on a story for the magazine that was was focused on happiness. And of course, there's a direct correlation between um, the blue zones and and measurable life fulfillment, essentially, because because happiness is an immeasurable. But um, one of the things that I was curious about, especially in, in Game Changers, because I watched that and, you know, I know Scott really well. I know Alex Honnold really well. How do how, like in these films? And this is a little bit aside the point, but I just as a, as a storyteller and as a filmmaker, I'm curious, like they, they do focus on the exceptions and not the rules. You know what I mean? Like, how do you bridge that gap between, okay, we're showing the exception, but this is applicable to, to everybody. Yeah, uh, does know, that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. And it doesn't make any sense, but you know, we do. So we did a, probably a bad job of storytelling because people see that movie, the game changers and they go, well, I'm not a super athlete, but you know, right. there is a, there is a turn. There's a, you know, the first act turn in that, that film, James Wilkes's father has a heart attack. Cause he's been eating, you know, he's from England and he's, uh, you know, from the, 
the rural capital of America of, of the UK over in England, and he eats cheese and meat and you know the, like kind of kind of like a standard American diet. SAD, per, per, wonderful acronym, right? And so so that was that was the turn where we were, where, you know, to, to me this uh, like James's father became the proxy for the rest of us. And, you know, mm -hmm. one thing we did in that film was we took 30 firefighters and firefighters are pretty, you know, they're, they're usually pretty healthy people, right? They're exercising they're together, they're living together, but they're eating like shit together. You mm -hmm. know, they, they mm -hmm. go there and, and Kip, Kip Esselstyn, who was a firefighter down in Austin, you know, saw that, you know, see, he said 67% of firefighters don't die in the line of duty from fighting fires. They, they, they die from heart attacks because they eat like James's father eats. Whole Foods gave us Whole Foods for, for the for these firefighters for 21 meals, seven days, seven days, seven days, you know, one, two, three, four, six, seven days, 21 meals. We got these firefighters on a Whole Foods plant-based diet. And then uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, they, they lost about six pounds in, in that week. Their, their total uh, cholesterol went down 22 points. Uh, all their, their blood pressure got better. And, you know, seven days, your body just wants to heal. So to answer your question, to me, that was like, you know, James's father was the proxy for, for uh, uh, the everyman. What we, we did a great job is, is proving that, you know, high performance people did well, but, and, and it could help old people. But if you're like your age, you know, if you're like you're 25 or 40 or 50, you still think you're going to live forever. You know, and, and, and we, we, we probably didn't do a good enough job of showing it was for everybody. So I'm doing a series on food to, to, to yeah. really answer that problem, That's you know, great. that, uh, to, to hit that middle ground that won't be focusing on super athletes and, and not the, the purely sick, but like, you know, one out of three people in America are going to have Alzheimer's really, well, let's just say they're going to be affected by it. Either you're going to have it, your, your mate's going to have it, you're going to be taking care of parents with it. It's, set, it's on track to be our biggest killer and our most expensive disease. I don't know if it's to, to do with plastics, but it's certainly to do, well, they opened up a brain health and, uh, and Alzheimer's clinic in Loma Linda, two, two researchers, married couple, Dean and Aisha Shurzai. And they thought, okay, let's, start, let's open it up at the university. We'll see how, you know, what's, what's going on with Alzheimer's in the community. They opened up the doors and nobody came. They've had 5,000 people there. Only 13 of them have been, been vegetarian. In a community where half the people are vegetarians, you would expect mm -hmm. half the people to be there. They had to go recruit people from over in San Bernardino, they had, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the neighboring communities, because there was you know, this really healthy. Listen, if, if, if you have a parent or a mate that has it, and, yeah. and, and you knew that you could avoid it just by eating better. And, you know, listen, it's not, I don't want to just say, Hey, it's a whole foods plant-based diet, you know, like Dan Butner says, or like they do in Loma Linda or, you know, these other programs it's, it's lifestyle, you know, which is sleeping well, it's a whole foods plant-based diet, it's exercise, it's social support, being around that, you know, the community where a place where you feel where you have a, a sense of worth and belonging, that's really important. Um, and it's, uh, you know, about taking time to relax too. meditation, you know, getting your cortisol levels down, keeping your stress levels down. And I think there's, there's probably a, a magic formula in there somewhere where you can, you know, listen, what's, what good is living long if you're not living fulfilled. Right. So I, I think there's, there's a formula in there, but really it starts with putting the right fuel in the tank and, you know, you know happiness is, uh, in, in America, what, what I, what I forgot back when I was a kid. It was like what what made me happy was like when I was when I felt like I was using my art 
to make the world a better place. That may be, that gave me a lot of fulfillment, but then you have your, your parents saying, Oh, is it a steady job? Is it enough money? I want a bigger house. You know, what about the kids? And you start these stories, like you said, you, you lose that North star and all of a sudden you're wandering around thinking because everybody in this, in, in the Western world is telling you, you need a big house. You need to have a lot of sex. You need to have power. You need to have fancy stuff. You need to have these things. And once you get that, it doesn't, it doesn't make you any happier. It probably makes, you know, when I worked for fortune magazine, I saw a lot of unhappy people that were the richest people in the world. You know, that's what I did for a living is I photographed people with too much money. They were some of the, the grumpiest, orneriest, not nice people I've met. Some people were like rock stars, like Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft or, or Jim Clark, you know, big, huge hearts because they had, they kept their North star. But, you know, I, I just did a film with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. It's coming out uh, next month in uh, the Tribeca Film Festival. And it's all about happiness. It's, 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 it's called Mission Joy. You know, how do you find mm -hmm. joy in a world fulfilled with so much sorrow? And it just felt like it was so good to do a film where I didn't have to like, okay, how am I going to make, you know, like, quote, like garbage looking exciting or, you know, it was a film about you know, <laughs> the dolphin slaughter or the, or the, yeah. just, you know, the, the species extinction. It was like, and, and this is maybe a key too, is like, unless we, we look at the cancer that's affecting our lives, if we've, we've lost our value system, then of course we're going to crash the biosphere. If, if we've mm -hmm. lost track of what makes us happy then we're all, you know, capitalism is going to always be telling us that we need something more or less. You know, Adam Smith, the, the father of economics, wrote a book in 1776, same, we know what happened that year too, America started. He wrote a book called The, the Wealth of Nations. And uh, that's where supply and demand economics was first presented to the world. And it's taught in every economics class you ever learned. But, you know, back in 1776, Adam Smith couldn't imagine an ocean where he could fish out all the fish. There was no such thing as plastics. There's no such thing as fossil fuels creating a blanket of pollution that forms around the world that's going to, you know, heat up the, pl the planet and melt the glaciers and acidify the oceans. He couldn't imagine that kind of world because, you know, capitalism didn't take in, take into account the, you know what we call the externalities where the you know the fallout of having a, a thriving economy is actually crashing the biosphere and now they have the like an economics or like a, a happiness quotient right you know i think bhutan, uh, <laughs> bhutan and i think wasn't it australia that just also put it into the i might be mixing that up but there's another country that that a western country that finally um, is adopting some of the same principles that um, you know, happiness should be figured into the, you know, our economics equation. It's a different economic target. Yeah. 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 Actually, but essential, essential. You're not going to, you're not going to solve all yeah. these problems unless we address the, you know, what's really affecting us. Uh, just to dissect back on so much of the ground that you've covered here just recently, because we, we asked you about what always to do in your storytelling. And we talked about, you know, the focus on a character an engaging character that engaging character kind of complicates the narrative and also brings in as a trusted messenger, a group that you're trying to affect that is body bodybuilding tough men with the story and transition your diet. But really the, the, the goal obviously is, is thinking about, you know, supporting the evidence that you're, that you're digesting on the side about plant-based diet and the effectiveness of that. Uh, there are certainly always opportunities to refine and make it better that I just, we watched you kind of in your own mind, click on what you could have done better in your storytelling and your craft to reach even a bigger audience. But in all of that, in crafting the story, making this relatable story, guiding someone through this narrative. So it, you know, this message sticks and gets them think we still have to digest 
what we referred to before is all the doom data, right? Like you, you have to understand the feel that play and you clearly are someone who's invested in, in that data just as much as I am maybe on medical data and, and, and Corey on many mental health. How do you not get burnt out by that in yourself? Because you are your own story, you, your own person, you're reading all this data about all the adverse impacts on the planet and the oceans and the ecosystems, I guess, how do you just keep your emotional fatigue at bay with someone who's so engaged in activism as you are? Well, for, first of all, it feels like I'm documenting other people that are doing frontline work. You know, we, we read about it, we go to those areas, but I can, I can dip back out. You know, it's the people that are you know, like at the Humane Society that are dealing constantly with billions of animals and animal welfare, you know, that that feel I, I, I get enough support or enough feedback so I can be at my nice little apartment and 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 read. And I, I, I go off, you know, I guess to answer your question, it's like I go for walks with my girlfriend. I um, I'm right after this call, I'm taking off to visit a friend in Green Valley, but we're going to be working on the U.N. project. You know, I try to balance out the my exposure. Like sometimes, like when we go for walks, we just say we're not going to talk about work. Listen, we find something else to talk about. You know, there's I try to find yeah. I try to cultivate re- relationships so we're not just talking about work. You know, my friends are do other things. Bianca Valenti over the other day, a big wave surfer. You know, and I don't know. It's it's like there's a friend of mine that works for Greenpeace, a photographer, Paul Hilton, and uh, he's a, a wonderful photographer. Like you know, it, it, he the guy can't go on vacation. He's, his wife says like he, he goes on vacation. He's, he's looking at like some turtle that needs rescuing on the beach, or like you know somebody's cutting down a tree, or you know some some environmental issue where he goes because his his whole focus of his life is about showing this man's inhumanity to man or the environment. And you can't, you can't turn it off, but I, I try to, I try to turn it off. I, I, I try to live, you know, we, we work in a nice place. We work up at, uh, I can't even say where we work a non-disclosure agreement, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I live in a comfortable place. It's not a fancy place, but it's not, it's a nice view. I like hanging out in nature. One thing I've, I've learned to do is just, you know, find your tribe. And I, I think I've, I've, I hung out, I started to hang out with a lot of people that I always thought that the people that were the game changers, the people that, that really were, you know, could think outside the box, you know, really had some dark sides to them. You know, now I'm surrounding myself with people that are like, I didn't realize you could have really high functioning people that are trying to change the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds silly, but um, you know, like I, I think finding your tribe really helps like I, like I don't go out and drink, you know, yeah. I don't go out and party. I don't, you know, I, 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 I've gotten that part of my life back where I don't feel like I have to like, Oh, it's, you know, I've earned, I've earned my day. I, I can go have a drink. I don't do that anymore. I focus in it. I don't hang around with people that drink a lot because it just doesn't, you know, it's not my tribe anymore. Do you, so so I mean, I'm sort of rambling there, but that's it, you know, finding your tribe and, you know, just, just trying to balance off your life so that you're not always in, in the crap. Right. What's, what strikes me, Louis, is that you're hopeful. And, 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 and I think that's interesting because despite sort of some of the topics that we've hit on here, I mean, we're talking about global degradation, the this disruption of the biosphere, uh, really at the hands of humanity, you know, and the films that you've made are uh, in some ways, some of the heaviest, I guess, it's the heaviest information that we, that we get um, through film and media. And yet, Maybe I'm wrong here, but you see, you do seem hopeful. And I'm curious, is that derived from the purpose that you feel around your work? Or is it derived from the facts that you see? Or is it, or is it both? Is it, is it and? 
I'm old enough now that I can see that these movements take time, you know, that you, you think you have a brilliant idea and you think, well, the world should get it instantly. Well, you know, we're usually about 10 to, but these, these changes that these, these big changes that we have take about 10 years, right? When you was a, a futurist and um, I'm trying to remember his name, maybe I can think of it on the way, but anyway, I was at a conference, an environmental conference, and he showed this picture of the New York Easter parade of 1900. Now, my, I had a great grandmother that lived in, in New York at the turn of the century. And she remembers, you know, when it was all horses. And remember, there's 20,000 tons of manure dumped on the street every day in, in New York, and it's not being cleaned up very well. And so it's like you're dragging manure shit into your house, into your school. There's flies everywhere. The sailors could smell New York from, you know, way before they could see it. And, you know, there's all that pee and urine and people think, oh, this romantic idea of horses. No, it was a bad form of transportation, right? We didn't have anything else. So the 1900 Easter parade, there's a picture taken from the top of the building on Broadway looking down and it's all horses except for one car. And then you can imagine everybody in the horses thinking, well, why do you need that, that thing? And, you know, 13 years later, the 1913 Easter parade, it's find the horse. It changed that quickly. These technological revolutions take about 10 years to, you know, 13 years ago, we were hitting the number two key six times on our flip phones to text to capital C. You know, <laughs> and, and now like, you know, I, I, I spent 12 hours a day on my phone last week, you know, Apple tells me. Uh, and that's not even, you know, considering the computer. So, you know, I had a, when I was in Boulder, I had one of the first electric cars in the state. And a, a, a full a 2002 fully electric Toyota RAV, and it was powered by 120 solar panels on my roof. And I thought, why? This is a zippy car. You know, I never stopped at a gas station except to get windshield wiper fluid or fill up the tires. I thought, why on earth isn't everybody doing this? And then we, do, you know, one thing we did with Racing Extinction, we took a, we took a, a Model S. And we turned it in, we wanted to turn it into a bond car. It was the first car in the world to have an electroluminescent paint job. We used it for like a camouflage. You could change the, the, the color of the car with a flick of a button. We had a forward-looking infrared camera that came out of the front, the front of the car, so it could see carbon dioxide, the invisible world of greenhouse gases. And then we could project those images uh, from a, a, a 20,000-lumen projector that came out of the rear end. Uh, and we could project those images onto skyscrapers or, you know, we did, you know, images onto you know, the flat irons back in Boulder and we had disappearing license plates. But when we, we went to go buy that car, that car to look at the, the, the line, the Model S's back in 2012 weren't that common. There wasn't that many of them made. And we wanted to interview Elon for that. And I'll get, I'm answering your, your question, believe it or not. So 2012, <laughs> uh, Elon, uh, we were going to interview him in October and he wrote back and said, can we, you know, uh, do this next quarter? And I said, why? And he said, well, I could go bankrupt. It's 2012. Now, fast forward. That car is like the most, you know, one of the most amazing cars ever made, right? And, uh, you know, Lalani Muntru is a race car driver and she was our get getaway driver in that movie. Uh, she, when we drove that off the lot, she turned me and said, every other car on the road just became a relic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so now you, you, what, 12, 13 years later, about the same time it took to transform from horse to cars it's now taken about that time, you know, that time to, for people to get the idea that electric cars are a better form of transportation. Now, Elon is, you know, the second or third richest guy in the world. He's completely changed, you know, the, the automobile industry. He's, you know, every major car company has announced their plans to get rid of the internal combustion engine in just a few, you know, a few short years. But in 2012, 
he was going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. So to, to answer your question, like these revolutions take time. I would say that in the next 12 years, if you order a burger from Macau at a restaurant, it's going to be the equivalent of lighting up a cigarette on a plane. And we used to be doing that in, in 1990s. We were still, people were still, still smoking on planes. 30 years after the Surgeon General you know, said there's, you know, smoking was hazardous to your health. It was secondhand smoke that really, you know, killed that idea. But, you know, plastics is probably the secondhand smoke for the, the fossil fuel industry. Once we start to realize, once we start to hit home with that message that, hey, you know, it's not just screwing up the ocean. It's not making this blanket of pollution over the body. The planet is actually affecting your brain. It's affecting your health. It may be making you fatter. I think that's mm. going to be that's going to be the key. That's, that's going to be the, the message they're not going to want to hear. We've got three minutes left. I think I feel like we need a a second episode, but I I just want to offer you the mic here because I, you know, do you have anything you want to add or anything you want to ask? This has just been the most enlightening and fun podcast I've done because quite frankly, everything that we had listed for this stuff to ask you, you just kind of did it. I mean, you know, you kind of, I don't know if you saw our notes or something, but I, I really just kind of blown away. Yeah, no, thanks. Well, thanks, for, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you guys. No, it's a- I did want to ask you one last question, Louis, maybe just to help summarize this, this up because, um, and I appreciate your kind of long-term view and your perspective to help other people get hope from you going forward. And you love telling story. You're clearly a professional storyteller. And so thanks for all the stories illustrating the points leading up to this, uh, this point. But for a young, motivated, burgeoning activist or new filmmaker who admires your work, uh, wants to do their part, I think it can be really paralyzing, not only by the scope and scale of the problems of the world, but also just the glut of information and different competing resources out there. Um, you've had a story of a benefit of a lot of wonderful encounters, some chance, some premeditated that really have been a spark that has led to a wildfire of success. How do you motivate someone who's just getting started and give them the faith to go forward with this mission? Whether it be, I need to do something about degradation of uh, coral in the seabeds, or I need to do something about the pollution problem with plastics in the ocean. I need to do something about climate change. Uh, If you were speaking to a young friend at a cafe Mm -hmm. that admired you and was looking into doing similar work, what, what would you tell them? Well, I know find find great characters, find you know again find great people to work with. That's really key. But you need to find somebody like that story, that key story. Like we don't we don't go out and like people always want to see like they're gonna give me money to make or my, my organization money to make a film. They they want it to be scripted. And I think it was Jacques Cousteau who said if I if I knew what I was gonna find, I wouldn't go there. And it's partly because the good stuff you find once you start that mission, you have a you know a working treatment, an idea. But the the gold is always found in the field, the the great story that you never you couldn't find until you got out there. And there's no shortage of great stories. So the problem I have is time. You know, we're we're working on on nine different films right now, and you know, uh, there's another half a dozen I'd love to work on. And this, they're not always mine; they're other people's. But we're our north star is can we use our films to to scale social change that's that's it and i would say first of all to that that person whoever that is you know keep in mind that what's going to make what's going to what's going to get you going like when when the when there's no money and you know everything's you know crashing down on you you want to be sure that this you're passionate about that story because 
what you know that'll get you through the hard times like it, it's the same as if you're doing a startup or a film or doing anything make sure that you really feel strong about that but you know fine but in terms of the like a storyteller with a film make sure you find the right character you know if you get people to fall in love with your characters then they'll they'll go anywhere with you i i, I look for people that i'm i'm intrigued by you know i, I like their story and if there's a, a way to tell that through them because people care about other people the takeaway from this Dalai Lama Desmond Tutu film that we worked on is like, what's going to give you joy is if you're helping pe other people. So if the story you're telling is helping other people, then you're not going to need to get loaded to see the film. You're not going to, you know what I mean? You're, you know, you don't have to need to make a lot of money. It, it'll, it'll come to you because you'll be, you'll find the right people to support your documentary habit because they'll, they'll, they'll understand you. Right. I, I pre-qualify people that to come to me about making a film. I said, if you want to make a return on a film that I do, you're better off taking your money to Vegas because, you know, my films haven't made money. They've been the most successful in documentary history, the ones that our team has made. But if you want to change the world, you know, we're the right team. But that's because we kept our value system pretty true. We're, we're, we're trying to, to scale change. So I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Find, find stuff you love and, and, and do that and find, find the right people to work with and find the right um, characters to tell the story. Because that's, it's going to take years to do it. You know, even if you do a film pretty quick within, you know, a year or a year and a half, it, it, you want to make sure that you can wake up every day and make, you know that you made the right decision. So start with that. <laughs> I guess, what's your take on, man? What, what are the pearls you pulled from that one? You know, I, I love his commentary on the North Star as a storyteller and really as, as an activist or as an advocate, I think uh, we have to find what our North Star is. And, and certainly as I've gone through the last few months of my life, distilling through the noise and finding what you're actually passionate about, what your causes are mm -hmm. and, and zoning in on those, I think is uh, a really, really tangible and digestible takeaway. I think so often we are, like you said, there's this download of doom right now. And what I found and what he was echoing and what was reinforced by him is that if you can narrow in on what it is that you actually care about, uh, the doom seems to subside. But if you're paying attention to it all and feel as though you have to be a steward for every single thing, you are going to be overwhelmed and quite frankly, sunk by it. So that was one of them. And I, and I loved what he had to say about narrative versus doc. I love the idea that we are pushing a log uphill and, you know, and however you want to go into this, be it photography, music, filmmaking, uh, poetry, you know, we're all pushing the log uphill together. And again, that goes back to the first point, which is find what it is that, that moves you and that you feel good at and that you feel a sense of purpose and, and fulfilled by and pursue that to no end, you know, allow that to to make what it does. That, those were the big takeaways. And obviously there's so much more about his films that there's the relevant information that's, that's presented, but also this idea that it doesn't take the whole world to know, it takes 10%. And once that 10% is activated, then the shift happens. And, and again, I mean, I'm just sort of recapping here, but also knowing that it takes time. You know, you're not gonna start a social movement and see everything change the next day. 
there's a critical mass that has to be reached and then it starts to roll. And, and his point with electric automobiles, I think was, was brilliant. And I mean, I see that all the time in my own conversations about mental health all of a sudden more and more people are, are asking those questions. And I think we're, we're on the cusp of something big in that regard. So those were my big takeaways. What did you, what did you walk away with? Yeah. A lot of the same Corey. Um, you know, I think, uh, I really appreciated his, his long-term view and his, it, is experience and reflection um, as as a beacon of hope, so to speak. But what was interesting, you know, in that question I was asking about him, how he's not paralyzed and feeling down, and the weight of the bad news out there, because I certainly feel that all the time. Is I, I noticed something that not many other people who are just listening to the podcast can see, but the guy really lights up when he's speaking about the characters in his life. Yeah. Um, and the people that are doing micro change, you know, we focus so much on the construct of what it is to create a good story to lead to change into action. And he focused on these key characters, right? Some characters mm -hmm. that complicate the narrative, some that have a street cred within a particular community that you want to affect or, or bring a message to. But in that, in talking about the characters, you'd see him really light up. And then he's telling about the taxi driver, right? That stopped in the middle of the street and turned around and flipped off the rest of the traffic because he was checking out, you know, the slideshow on the side of the Empire State Building of, right, this, uh, right. of threatened species. And it's like all these little micro moments. I think part of what keeps him hopeful and keeps him motivated is the very process of making these stories because he, he gets to see and experience and work with these people. And he's got an eye for these stories. And yes, it is just one person. Yes, it is the response of just one individual, um, but all those together obviously lead to this tidal wave of change. And the fact that he can go to Australia and just run into somebody that mentions his film and that really floats him up, I think is another example of that. And, and he, and his, in the end, in the summary, he actually kind of said it himself. He said, the good stuff you find when you go there. Right. Yeah. It's like you commit yeah. to the process, you go in and then you find these great people that are doing the work and that is your motivation. And that is, that is your hope going forward. And then the other take home for me too, for those in the audience, that I think are paralyzed that they're not smart enough. They're not connected enough. They're not rich enough uh, to do any of these things is, I mean, he's just, he's committed to refining his process all the time. I mean, you right. asked him a question and then it question, made him question whether he did his job adequately. Um, and I think uh, that that sense that you can always do better and you, you can do a little more, I think that's with everybody. I mean, I think yeah. whether you're starting or you're established, uh, I hate to tell you this, but you know, you, you might just be cursed with that for the rest of your life, but that may actually be the very thing that's going to make you successful uh, in what you want to do uh, to make change in this world. So those, those were my take-homes uh, with him, but um, really cool to talk to somebody who's had so much impact like Louie has. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's rare to, to have an Oscar winner on. I mean, we obviously, yeah. you know, in our community, we have Jimmy Chin as well, but I think Louis work is um, you know, it's a different thing and, and not to say one is better or worse. It's just Louis has uh, really spent a lifetime crafting narrative about social change. And I want to also just plug really quick, the oceanic preservation society. He did not um, have an opportunity to, to talk about how to get involved, but certainly that'll be in our show notes. Um, you know, OPS basically works to harness the power of the camera to expose crimes against nature uh, and, and ultimately illuminate solutions. So it's an incredible organization to look into, to be a part of it in any way, if you can. Um, yeah, Louis Sahoya, uh, one of the legends and certainly somebody to look to for uh, what seems to be unbounded uh, inspiration and curiosity. So 
uh, we hope you enjoyed the conversation and give us some feedback um, and we'll keep bringing them if you guys keep listening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, Louis. Appreciate all your hard work and service of UN Sustainable Development Goals 14, Life Below Water, 15, Life on Land, and three, uh, Good Health and Well-Being, which we touched on a lot uh, at the end of the interview. If anybody's inspired and, and continues to listen to us and has enjoyed what Corey and I and CJ and all of our guests have had to share, leave a comment or potentially rate us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. We would love the feedback. Send us questions. If there's other topics you'd love to, to hear about. And please just help spread the word if this has made an impact in your own life. We'd really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, everybody. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast Rum From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there, sort of the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out if you enjoy this podcast. That's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com, real simple. Thanks for listening.